inspiration, success stories, expert advice, strategies, new ideas, and amazing conversations. Everything you need to become a great speaker. This is Oscar Santolaya, and welcome to Time to Shine. Hello, and thanks for joining today. I will have the pleasure to have a guest who has been already two times in this podcast, but he has very new things to tell us. Actually, he has a brand new book. So let me introduce you again, Tim Pollard. Tim Pollard is the founder and CEO of Oratium, a leading messaging consulting firm. He's a sought-after speaker and author of the acclaimed book, The Compelling Communicator, Mastering the Art and Science of Exceptional Presentation Design. Polo draws insights from a long career in sales, marketing, and communications for companies such as Unilever, Barclays Bank, and the Corporate Executive Board. He has just released a new book, Mastering the Moment, Perfecting the Skills and Processes of Exceptional Presentation Delivery. Hello, Tim. Oscar, good morning. How are you? Very good. Uh, evening already here, <laughs> and it's <laughs> always like that. Many many hours of difference. Yeah. Um, we bought already on end of autumn or beginning of winter, depending how you <laughs> how yeah. you see it. <laughs> yeah, seven uh, degrees Fahrenheit here today. Seven degrees Fahrenheit and two feet of snow. So we are fully in oh, winter here. <laughs> that's fully winter. Yeah. Yeah. We had snow, but now it's 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 kind of autumn again, uh, mostly wet in. <laughs> oh, excellent. Great, great having you here again for the third time. And congratulations for this new book, which I just start, <laughs> I start reading it and mastering the moment. Uh, please tell us right away why you wrote this book. Um, sure. So the first book, The Compelling Communicator, was about message design. Uh, how do you build a message and particularly build it in a way that, you know, deeply penetrates the brain of an audience and that book really confined itself to the conversation of design but delivery still matters because there are so many things that can go wrong when you get up to present and you can have an amazing message designed but when you get up either some technology failure or you've insufficiently rehearsed and the words don't come out the way you'd planned, or the audience gets out of hand and derails you and you can't get them back, or you never quite find that real precision and perfection in, in language that you want. And what I've known for years is that extraordinary communication is at the intersection of great design and great delivery. Now, what most people think about that matters in delivery is wrong. The things that we tend to think matter just do not matter. There's a whole lot of other things that we don't think about enough that do matter. So I wrote this book really as a, uh, the conclusion of a pair. What do you do on game day to make certain that you deliver the message in exactly the way you wanted to? I talk about something called the delivery dilemma, which is the gap between the message that you designed that you wanted to come out of your mouth and what actually did come out of your mouth on the day. So this, this book exists really to close that gap. Mm-hmm. Yes, surely there is the compelling communicator, uh, an amazing book. You talk about the brain, how to put everything in big ideas. Mm -hmm. That's how the human way, brain will understand, get, and you talk about retellability, mm -hmm. how your ideas have to be not only understood, but by retold. Yeah. And now, um, yes, I, I agree that messages first no architecting your messages but yeah then it comes the time when you have to we'll have some challenges if in delivering if you don't don't know some some of the points that you you have in this book yeah um yeah before asking you the the main points i i noticed something interesting and a bit funny <laughs> mm -hmm. that chapter 11 chapter 11 the title is yeah. eye contact and body language and has only How do I count? One or two pages? What, <laughs> no, what happened there? That, that entire chapter is seven words. <laughs> yeah, one page, seven words. Do you want me to read you the chapter? Yeah, please. So chapter 11, eye contact and body language. Here we go, the whole chapter. Have some. Don't be weird. 
That's it. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of I got a lot of good feedback on that chapter, but it's it's an interesting it's an interesting point, and I am making a deliberate point with that. Most presentation skills, books, and training focus disproportionately on eye contact mm-hmm. and body language, and it's just stupid. You, you don't come out of any presentation saying it was good or bad because the guy made great eye contact or he had wonderful body language. It's a throwback to 1950s thinking. And the problem with it is if you fixate on that, or a term I'll use is if you over-rotate on that and you spend all your time trying to get your eye contact and body language right, you're actually not thinking about what matters. And so um, there is a postscript to that chapter. I talk a little bit about the, a couple of things that do matter in eye contact and, and body language. But honestly, I think that second chapter is about three pages. The mm-hmm. only thing that matters in eye contact and body language is what I call congruence, which is let the actions of your body and face fit the tone of the meeting. If you're going to be upbeat and jaunty for a fun you know, presentation that's maybe a retirement address, you're going to be more sober calm and quiet maybe for a funeral eulogy but the only thing i believe truly that matters about eye contact and body language is congruence after that there's a hundred other things that matter an awful lot more people have actually told me that's really refreshing because they know that stuff's crazy what they then get really excited about is well you know there's 200 you know 90 pages here if it's not about eye contact body language what is it about and that that i think is the (laughs) interesting question yeah, I think it's a um, it's a great way to emphasize that that that's what you you believe uh, because you could have done uh, let's say five ten pages small chapter but uh, the way you did it intentionally put it is just seven seven words <laughs> yeah people will remember that <laughs> that's kind of the plan I, I'm trying to I'm not only trying to help people figure out what's right, I'm trying to help them stay away from what's wrong. And so I was trying to land mm-hmm. the point that way. So I'm glad you noticed that. That's a that's a good sign. Yeah, and I will remember and I will retell. <laughs> there we go. That's exactly what we're trying to get. Excellent. Uh Tim, please tell us the the main point of your book. What will be the main point? So I think you have to break it into three. There are three mm-hmm. critical things you have to get right. Now, let's assume this all is predicated on building a strong message. All the things we described earlier, it's powerful. It ties to an audience problem. It's built around ideas. It has a logical narrative. So all the things we want to get right. But there are then three core skill buckets. First one is preparation right up to the moment that you stand up. Hardly any speaker prepares enough, and most speakers also prepare in the wrong way. I'll give you a couple of examples. If I was presenting, and I've seen this, if I was presenting to a group that just launched a product successfully, you know, or had some major win, they're going to be in a particular place emotionally. If I'm presenting to a group that just missed its quarterly goal, or even, Mm -hmm. and this has happened to me two or three times, where a member of the audience has just suffered some personal tragedy or bereavement, They're going to be in a completely different place emotionally. And I have to understand that because the tone, the nature of my remarks needs to change based on what I call the emotional makeup of the room. So that's just one example of a very, very simple piece of preparation that nobody does. Understanding the level of English fluency, just small things that have a very big effect, especially if you don't get them right. And then probably the two bigger things in preparation, one is understanding the nature and value of real rehearsal. So many people go into a presentation, kind of they they look at their notes and they're like, yeah, I've got this. They haven't really Mm. got this. There's a difference between (laughs) really having grooved the language so it comes out with with an exactness and a precision that leads to the impact you want versus vague, stumbling language which is a result uh, of of a speaker that hasn't rehearsed enough. And then funnily enough, the second big thing, which uh, I'm obsessive about, I think all great speakers have always been obsessive about, like Steve Jobs, is the venue. Is the venue has an enormous ability to make your presentation, help it be incredibly successful, or to completely destroy it. You can have a perfect message, and the room's loud, 
noisy, the mm -hmm. clattering, you know, servers are, are, are kind of clearing dinner and the room's set to 75 degrees, it's after lunch <laughs> or something like that. And you're in an irretrievably bad situation. And most speakers just take the venue like it's just what they've been given. But what a great speaker understands is that it's, it's entirely under your control. You can stop servers clearing plates. You can have leaf blowers move to other places in the property. You can uh, get temperature lowered. Uh, Steve Jobs was obsessive about this. Several great speakers have been. But the point is, there's a lot of really important stuff that impacts how well the presentation is going to go that are all to do with the venue. And, you know, if you're up there the night before moving chairs around, getting sight lines right, good. That's exactly what you should be doing because there's a the, the venue has a much bigger impact than people think. Second big section of the book is really mechanics. So once you're up there, what do you actually do? There are really important things that can go right or wrong in your opening. Opening of any presentation is that moment where you're most carefully being scrutinized by the audience but it's also the moment where your brain is most likely to turn to mush and there are mm. several really important things you have to do literally right up to the, the last moment before you stand up to make sure that you get your opening exactly right and and it's really interesting if you get it right then everything tends to flow well and downhill from there if you get the opening wrong you get in your own head about this is not going well. You get flustered and, and problems tend to multiply. I've seen speakers who've delivered a bad opening who then really never fully recover from that. Then we get into a lot of just basic mechanics. I mean, how do you use your voice? How do you lead the audience correctly through the materials you've given them, like a handout or something like that? How do you maintain a high energy level? And we do talk about eye contact and body language. And then I think is is maybe one of the most important chapters in there is, is how do you manage an audience? A presentation is not generally a monologue. It might be in a very large ballroom, but the 99% of presentations are a complex dance between a speaker and an audience and getting the audience to engage in, in and participate in the conversation but without allowing that to get out of control and out of hand is a very, very interesting skill to be mastered. So that's kind of the second big section of the book, which is all the mechanics, like getting your hands dirty and how to get it right. But I would argue even the most important section of the book is still to come. It's the third section because the second section is, is what you do. The third section mm -hmm. is who you are. Uh, and I'm really very proud of this section. If you look at extraordinary speakers – they have a certain persona or poise, and it was really interesting to explore where does that come from. I mean, we tend to think that we have one style, one persona, but of course that's not true. We all have multiple personas. You're going to be funny and boisterous maybe at a friend's speaking at a birthday party or at a wedding, and you're going to be somber and reserved speaking at a funeral, for example. So we all naturally adopt different types of personas. So what I sought to explore here is, is in the typical business setting, organizational setting, what, what are the winning attributes of, of an extraordinarily strong and persuasive and compelling and, and appealing and attractive persona? And what I ended up concluding is there are two big things you've got to get right. The first one is style, that in fact, there are winning styles. There are certain stylistic variables that will make you appealing to your audience. And there are styles that will repel people. So what are those stylistic variables? And then the second big thing about developing a very powerful persona is your use of language. There's a big difference between bland, unimaginative language and rich, muscular language. So the third section is really about how do you cultivate a very powerful, compelling, appealing persona without coming across as arrogant or obnoxious. In fact, we have one very large, very well-known corporation. I, I won't tell you who it is, but it's very interesting. They have asked if we can convert Section 3 of the book into a training for all the senior women in leadership mm -hmm. at that company. And the reason is they found that as women in that company are promoted, and it's a largely male environment, one of the things they've struggled with is developing a powerful, compelling persona when they communicate. And so they actually want to use this material as the basis for some training 
to help those women develop that persona that they're looking for. That's not to say that this section only would apply based on sort of you know gender differences, but it's just interesting if you're looking to develop a more effective speaking persona, then this final section of the book answers the question, you know, how do you do that? So anyway, those are kind of the three big ideas in the book. You've got to prepare right. You need you have to have the right mechanics. You've got to you know what to do has got to go right, but who to be is also a very important question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, I think it's, it's it's great. You you have these two uh, sorry three main topics um, that goes af- after no? as as we said earlier after you uh, you craft your your message. Yeah, your message is ready. Now you the preparation comes for for the delivery and yeah first is the preparation uh, yeah. things that you do before before the the event itself and there as you already said there are a lot of things there then second is master what you do so yeah. again many things you can control when you are there at the venue and in yourself what you what you do what you say how you say things etc of course the third is is very interesting it's more more unique i would say master who you are yeah um you mentioned about this this person it's, um well let's let's i will ask you a few questions for for each for instance starting sure. from from the preparation so why why people leave preparations for the last minute why, why that is so typical you know it's interesting isn't it i mean it's such a human trait i mean how many of us waited till the last minute to do a a term paper or, a, or an essay in school. Mm. I, I think there are two or three reasons, right? One of them is it is our natural tendency to leave things to the last minute. And I think that's it, but I don't think that's the real reason. I think, I think the real reason is people underprepared is they just do not understand how much of a difference it's going to make. Um, mm. I've seen so many people just, you know, they kind of throw some slides together. Now that's obviously a design question. And then they kind of look through them, you know, before they get up and, and, you know, like, yeah, you know, I've got this, you know, and then they stand up and they just have no idea how badly it's going to go because they didn't prepare properly. I was in a meeting recently, uh, and it was an example, actually, I ended up using in the book where the hotel was leaf blowing outside. And um, this, this was a high prestige meeting. If they had gone... Uh, and I almost did this for them, even though I was one of the audience members. If the speaker mm-hmm. had bothered to work with the hotel ahead of time and say, look, this leaf blowing, that's not okay. We're spending a lot of money to be here. Don't do it now or move to another piece of the property. He could have made that problem go away. But the point was for half the room, the presentation was completely inaudible. I mean, this was binary. This was oh. black and white between success and failure. Um, mm-hmm. I, so I think the real reason people don't prepare is they just don't understand how much of a difference it's going to make. For some presentations, the difference between success and failure is the difference between 68 degrees and 74 degrees. We, we routinely <laughs> get every room down to 68 degrees, and people are cool and engaged. And at 74 degrees, you've lost them. And it doesn't matter really what else what else you're getting right. So I think people just underappreciate the importance of preparation. And the other one I mentioned earlier is if you look at your notes and you think, yeah, yeah, I I know this, you're really relying on your brain in the moment to craft exceptional language. Well, language is infinitely variable. There's hundreds of thousands of ways of articulating even a single thought. You really think your brain under the pressure of the moment is going to find the absolute best articulation. (laughs) It's just never, it's never going to happen. And I think the average presenter just does not understand the gap, the size of the gap that exists between poor preparation and great preparation. If you walk in, you're thoroughly rehearsed. You understand where your audience is coming from, that they're buoyant or they're subdued. Um, You know exactly what's going on in the venue. You've, You've created the right physical environment and so on and so on and so on. The difference it makes is absolutely enormous. Steve Jobs used to spend hours literally just making sure that lights were positioned in the right way to create the exact effect he was looking for at product launches. And people say, well, Steve Jobs was an exceptional communicator, and he was. But I don't think they understand what he was doing all the time. A lot of what he was doing was this kind of fanatical obsession, you know, attention to detail. So 
I think that if you really take responsibility for good preparation, it's not always a lot of time, but it definitely is some thought, you just substantially improve your chances for success. If you walk in with a vague idea of what you're going to say, no idea of where the audience is emotionally or you know whether you have some non-English speakers there and with no thought to whether the venue is set up right, you haven't checked your technology properly, you are just inviting catastrophe. Um, <laughs> I think, so I think that's the real problem. I don't think it's laziness. I think people think the difference is just marginal. Oh, yeah, a little bit more prep would be helpful. Yeah. No, it, it's, it, there's a chasm of difference here. There is. Uh, that's, I couldn't agree more. Sure. You already mentioned one aspect that is um, quite covered on your book. It's about the, the venue. Yeah. Um, tell us more about the, the venue. Why it's so important to, to pay attention? You know, it's really interesting. You know, the have you ever seen a presenter? They stand up with the audience kind of ready to start, and then they plug in their laptop for the first time. Mm. And the the moment of embarrassment and it is just palpable. I'm like, well, why why didn't you check that ahead of time? Uh, it's it's unbelievable. Everyone's seen. Everyone has seen this happen. Um, yes. I talk about the the four horsemen of the environment, which are, they can just be devastating. The four horsemen are noise. So noise disturbances, you know, too much happening. Uh, you know, you have a meeting room with thin, thin walls and there's a really loud meeting going on next door. Well, you can get that stop, but most people don't. Um, related to that is acoustics of the room. You know, if you're in a cavernous room without proper microphones, people are just not going to hear you. It's very echoey. That's going to kill you. Mm. Um, Temperature and general discomfort. I was at a meeting recently. Typical, and by the way, hotels always mess this up. You <laughs> were arranged in eight-person round tables. Great. But they'd set mm -hmm. out the entire table. So half the room are facing away from the stage. And the hotel don't think about oh. it. It's not their job. So we come in early. We pull all the chairs that are facing away. We get more tables in so everyone can actually face the speaker or people are, are just crammed in, or the room is the wrong shape and people can't see the screen, or it's 75 degrees. All of these physical things can be solved, and nobody usually takes the, chart, the time to figure them out. And then the fourth one is lighting. Mm -hmm. You've been in a meeting, and the, there's two huge windows directly behind the speaker, and they're just a black silhouette, and you're almost mm. blinded. Or <laughs> they dim the light so you can see their slides, and now they can't see their handout. I mean, it's just really... I mean, this is not hard stuff. I make this point in the book. No. A lot of the stuff in the first section of the book isn't hard. I actually say this phrase, advanced is not complicated. This book is extremely advanced, but it's not complicated. But if I took 100 speakers, 98 of them are not going to go in and take care of the things they need to take care of. So the lighting's wrong, the acoustics are wrong, the sound's wrong, there's noise coming in, <laughs> there's people clearing plates. As an anecdote in the book, I, I was speaking at a conference recently. We were running late, and I was meant to speak after lunch. And they said, hey, well, do you mind if, we, uh, if you speak during dessert and coffee? And I said, yeah, that's not going to happen. Because 20 servers serving and clearing desserts and coffee, there's nothing more disruptive. We've all, all been in that moment. It'll mess with your head. You know? it, you're trying to speak, and people are moving around, servers mm -hmm. moving around, clearing plates. I'm like, No, that's not going to work. And they were very shocked. And I said, look, it's fine. I can, I can create 10 minutes. We can start 10 minutes later, and I can create mm -hmm. 10 minutes by tweaking my content slightly. And I had an hour and a half, so I had no problem doing that. So they cleared the coffee. We had a nice break. The event starts with a little bit more uh, ceremony because we weren't doing that. And it was absolutely fantastic. And it would have been destroyed if I hadn't understood mm -hmm. the rules. And that's not complicated. So all the rules in the first section, no one's going to struggle with them intellectually, but it creates a really, really good set of checklists. There are actually some checklists in the back of the book that you can follow to make sure these landmines aren't blowing you up. It's simple things, but boy, every speaker has been taken down by them. And if you have enough of them happen, it doesn't matter what else you get right. The presentation is going to go wrong. Hmm. Yeah. As you said, there are, there are a lot of these elements that are advanced, but not complicated. 
And it's important that uh, we all learn that and keep it very on our minds because uh, as in this situation, you were very firm saying, no, I'm not going to start at this moment because yeah. it's going to ruin my presentation. You are firm and say, okay, we delayed and yeah. to make yeah. it properly. Yeah. And let me make two points on that. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't actually say it's going to ruin my presentation. What I said is it's going to ruin the learning experience of the audience. Now, do I worry mm-hmm. that it's going to ruin my presentation? Yes. But my point yeah. is I, this isn't about me. This is about whether yeah. the group is going to get out of this what they want to get out of it. And um, you're always doing everything to make the experience work for the audience. And the second thing I'd say, I'd be remiss if I, if I missed this, the number one rule here. Do you know what the number one rule is? It's so simple, but it's the number one rule. Get there early. Get there early. I will always arrive an hour, more than an hour before, usually the night before to check things out because physics says I can't get a room from 72 degrees down to 68 degrees in five minutes. <laughs> I, I oh, yeah. you know, you get there early and you can deal with anything. But I see speakers walk in five minutes before. It doesn't matter what's going to happen now. It's out of their control. And it, I just think, come on, it's so obvious. Get there early. You just the rule here is do things that average speakers don't. Get there early. Move mm. chairs around, move the tables around, change the lighting, change the layout. All of these things, they're all easy, but you can't do them with no time. And we actually just had a meeting last week. We went in the night before we spent an hour in jeans and t-shirts moving all the chairs and tables around, getting everything right, and we had an exceptional meeting the next day. No. Oh, absolutely. And one question still about preparation is what happens if you are going to present a topic that you have never presented? So it's the first time. Maybe there's something that project has just finished, so it's something relatively new. Mm-hmm. You have to deliver that. And you have only one day for preparation. What can you do? Um, that's a tough one, right? But, uh, you know, <laughs> there are always things outside of your control. I mean, mm-hmm. you... Well, let's assume you are a subject matter expert, because if you're not, you're Mm -hmm. a very dangerous person. What I would do, (laughs) I would absolutely over-invest in rehearsal. I would over-invest in rehearsal. Your job is to get your argument so grooved in your mind that it comes out the right way on the day. Now, sometimes in the scenario you're describing, it happens is you're getting very condensed. You don't have a whole lot of the luxury of a gap between finishing the design of the presentation and making it. But in that particular situation, I'm going to do two or three things. One, I'm going to absolutely over-invest in rehearsal. Two is I'm going to lean more on script and scripting and more complete notes. And I'm Mm -hmm. going to probably less extemporaneous. If I really feel I need to get it right, uh, I'm going to have captured a lot of my rehearsal language on note cards or typed on even on full scripting and there's an interesting appendix in the books on a book on how to use scripting versus notes um Mm -hmm. but if i feel like i just do not have a large enough window to really know that i've learned my material well enough then the fallback is to use more scripting i've been in lots of situations like that where we were presenting research and the research didn't conclude until very late those would be that situation Mm -hmm. where i would actually use scripting because once i've written it out reasonably longhand then i'm not trusting my mind on the day to create the argument and that that i think is is a very important discipline so those would would probably be the two major things would be you know put every minute you could into rehearsal and let your notes guide you more than you otherwise would it also means on the day you're not going to be kind of wandering around and and sort of talking apparently more extemporaneously you should never talk extemporaneously you should always be talking from the script in your head in that case i'd be much closer to the podium i'd be much closer to my notes because there's a much greater mm. risk i step away and ask my mind to to do a bit too much of the work mm. yeah it's that situations like that are, are difficult but yeah it's, it's very very valuable what you're we're telling us um, mm. yeah rehearse as much as you can <laughs> and based on Scripting, and I saw in your book there's a lot about that uh, scripts and and notes as you mentioned. Yeah, 
It's... Yeah, you have you have two or three choices for how you prompt yourself. I mean, I do not believe, and I make this point quite forcefully in the book. I see a lot of speakers present with no notes, and I'll be honest, I think they do it because they mm. think it looks cool. I think they do it because <laughs> it makes them look like an expert, and I think they're stupid uh, because I think you're asking your brain <laughs> to do something which it's really not capable of doing. I tell you an interesting story. I, I, I get a lot of people who seen TED Talks, and they think TED Talks are great. And TED mm. Talks, they can be great. I don't like them very much, to be honest, but the average one. But but the um, a lot of people say, well, I really want to sort of talk like TED. I want to present like TED. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they assume is that the, the heart of that model is just getting up there and talking from the heart. Well, I've done TED speaker coaching. We've coached a lot of our company coaches, a lot of TED speakers. Do you know why a TED speaker can stand up and talk with no notes? It's because they will have done commonly 30 to 50 full run-throughs of that talk. Because a TED talk to most people is a career highlight. And the danger when you look at TED, and I think this is a general rule that people need to think about, the danger when you look at TED talks and saying, well, that's the model I should use – is they really don't understand that that model does not really import very well. If I had a talk that was probably the highlight of my career and rehearsed it 50 times, I can't go and emulate that for a budget pitch. You you don't have that luxury. I don't think there's a presentation I've ever seen in the corporate world, or if, if there are any, it's a tiny fraction of the total, that would ever justify that degree of preparation. It's much more like what you were talking about five minutes ago. I'm going to present to my team. I'm going to present a budget. I'm going to go talk to a client. Yeah, I have preparation time, but I don't have that much preparation time. I might go make a really important sales pitch to a potential customer, a really important one. I don't get to rehearse that 50 times. So I make the argument in the book that you're crazy if you try and go without notes. You just don't need to. And the audience doesn't care. The audience isn't evaluating whether you use notes or not. They're evaluating what you're saying. So I make a fairly passionate argument about use notes, prompt yourself. Don't put too much pressure on the brain. And then the the decision between notes and full script is to do with a lot of mechanical questions about how well you know the material, what's the latitude for making mistakes. Um, And you get into some technical questions then. Some companies, for example, require – their executives to use script when they're speaking on a topic with legal implications. So there's just a bunch of weird technical reasons that might cause you to move between script and notes. And there is a a good appendix on that in the book if you want to explore that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. Uh, The the comparison you made with with that, of course, that uh, (laughs) to to speak without notes, you need (laughs) 30 times, 50 times. I know some some speakers have done more than that rehearsals. <laughs> yeah, no. And of no, course, right. you, you do that a few times in your life, of course. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And the flip side is people don't do that much rehearsal, and then they have no notes, and they stand up and they think they've got it. But in the, the, the nervousness of the event, then their brain almost paralyzes. And now you've got a real problem. Now you don't know it well enough and you don't have any notes, and your mind has seized up on you, now you've got a real problem. And and so the disadvantages of going notes-free are enormous compared to the advantages of using them because it, it's just devastating. We've all seen that. We've all seen some speakers come completely unhinged when they thought they had it and they didn't, and then their mind seized up mm. on them. And that's a Now you're talking about a dangerous moment for a presenter. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot to to think and work about preparation. But moving to the other part of the book, uh-huh. one concept you mentioned is muscular language. What is this? Well, this is really interesting. So there, there is language, as we know, is just the most fascinating topic. I mean, language is so mundane, you know, like, you know, it's everything is mundane. You know, Oscar, you might say to me, hey – you know, uh, when the recording's done here, we'll wait a few minutes for it to upload. So it's purely, you know, mechanical, just the mere mm-hmm. transmission of information. And language most of the time is that, the mere communication, the transmission of thought into word. But language is so much more than that. Um, language has this ability to envision and inspire. 
And, and what we know is, there's not a lot of research on this, but what we know is people form strong associations between the type of language you use and the type of person you are, your intelligence, your credibility, even your trustworthiness. There's one really interesting study. It's very old, and there's not a lot on this, but it was done by Duke Law School. And what they did is they evaluated the way um, in courtrooms, juries evaluated the testimony of jurors based only on the language they used. And what they found is when jurors used what they call weak language, and so weak language had characteristics like a lot of modifiers, like, you know, like and you know, and and also weak words like very. Very is a a, a weak word. It's generally understood to be that way. Um, What they found is that jurors who'd used that type of language were viewed as less credible and trustworthy um, okay. than uh, jurors who use a strong, more authoritative language. And what's truly terrifying about that study is the evaluation about their trustworthiness and believability was based on the language they were using to express their testimony, not the testimony itself. And think about it, that's terrifying. What if a key witness, mm. what if a key witness that you needed in your defense, if you were ever tried, happened to be someone who used really weak language, the testimony, even if it was identical to somebody using strong language, the testimony itself, the facts of the testimony, that juror is going to be perceived as less convincing, less reliable, less believable, less trustworthy. It's it's really terrifying. So what that means is what you want to do as a speaker is develop language, and the, the term I coined for this is, is more um, muscular. And what I what I mean by muscular language is is something quite distinctive. If you remember in the book, there's actually a table that defines this. So think about language on two axes. So one axis would be is the word you're using in common use. So you have words that are commonly used, and you have words that are not commonly used. And then the mm-hmm. second axis would be is the word generally understood, and words can be generally understood or generally not understood. Well, if you if you plot those on a two-by-two, two, so lower left would be commonly used and generally understood. So that would be a word like small. There's nothing wrong with that word. It, it, it's not powerful. What you want to do is go to the upper left on the matrix where you're still using words that are generally understood, but you're using words that are in less common usage. And that would be a much more uh, a muscular word. So you might go from small to minuscule. Everyone understands the word minuscule. Mm-hmm. And by the way, people understand words perfectly, usually if they're used in proper context. So if I said, the chances of us hitting this goal are small, it's okay. It's not incorrect, mm-hmm. but there's nothing interesting about it. If I said, guys, the chances of us achieving this outcome are minuscule, you see how much better that phrase is, achieving to hitting and small to minuscule. The chances of us achieving this outcome are minuscule. Now, when you use language like that, interesting things happen. One is people are engaged by it. They find it more interesting. The second thing we know is they begin to ascribe intelligence and competence and trustworthiness to the speaker. And the third thing is that language almost always allows you to develop a greater nuance in your argument. And that's important. It means you can be clearer than you were otherwise being. So let me give you an example. Imagine I said, hey, we looked at our performance where we thought we'd be and where we are, and we see a very wide gap. Now, that's the word very, and it's weak. Now, let me give you some examples Mm. Of you know, and you could find these examples with a thesaurus and thirty seconds. This is not hard. So imagine I would say, you know, we looked at this performance, blah blah blah, and we found a troublingly wide gap, a historically yes. wide gap, an alarmingly wide gap, a disturbingly wide gap. We saw an unexpectedly wide gap. Now, as I use that language, it's more engaging. I am actually, and and we know this from experience and from a little bit of research, that people are now ascribing a greater level of intelligence and trustworthiness to me 
But I'm also giving you a lot more nuance. A troublingly wide gap says it isn't just wide, but we need to worry about it. But if I said an unexpectedly wide gap, I'm saying there's a wide gap and it's bigger than we thought. It, we didn't see this coming. And so I've had this feedback a tremendous number of times in my own professional career that there is a, I've been benefited, shall we say, by having developed a broad vocabulary and just having an ability mm -hmm. to use what I would call more muscular language. Now, we're not straying over into the incomprehensible. I'm not going you know, prodigious yeah. or mellifluous. I mean, there are lots of words out there that people don't understand. And when you use them, you're going to have the opposite effect because you're really going to intimidate and tick people off. But there is an almost infinite variety um, of language that is available to you that is beyond the you know, pedestrian, uninteresting, mundane language. And I think most people have no appreciation for just how valuable it is to develop that greater sort of, what should I say, linguistic versatility, but it's an ability to use language in a slightly more interesting and heightened way. I think that's a good term, actually, heightened language. So the point with muscular language is that use words that are completely understood, completely well understood by people. You're never straying out of that. But find words that are in less common usage. And in doing so, you're going to find you get a tremendous range of benefits from doing that. And it's incredibly easy. I could take two minutes with a thesaurus and I could find half a dozen words that are going to give me that effect. So instead of saying get, we're going to get this, we're going to, we're going to acquire this, we're going to secure this, we're going to mm -hmm. accumulate this, we're going to obtain this. Or say, you know, you know, Oscar, what you did that week, that was great. Okay, weak word. Oscar, what you did there was remarkable. It was extraordinary. It was noteworthy. It was distinguished. These are all words that people understand. Yes. And in the, in the book, I give you some examples. There's a table on uh, page 236 of all the kind of words we use commonly, get, put, help, show, begin, decide, and what would be their more muscular alternative. So we could decide this. Um, you know, We have determined this. We have resolved this. We have settled this. And I personally believe the difference this makes in a speaker's effectiveness is just absolutely disproportionate. It's extraordinary. And it's not hard to do. You just have a little bit of confidence to try it and just don't stray into using words you don't understand or the audience doesn't understand. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And how you build this muscular language? Um, you know, I, I, I discussed that in the book, actually. There's probably seven or eight ways. I mean, the cheap and dirty, quick and dirty way with no word <laughs> is use a thesaurus. You know, if I was, if I was mm. developing some notes and, and I say, you know, I, I want to use a word, you know, like <laughs> great, and I just put great into a thesaurus, it's probably going to give me, you know, noteworthy, remarkable, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. Personally, that's the easy way out. Nothing wrong with it. Um, that won't necessarily bring words to your mind um, extemporaneously, so you have to be a little bit careful with that. My absolute favorite and the most obvious way of doing it is probably not the most popular, but I think you need to read more. People need to read more. Mm. If you read good writing, if you read literature, not even necessarily classic literature, but just literature books that are written well, mm -hmm. you're going to find that language being used, and it's going to begin – to cement itself in your brain. By the way, one of the things that's interesting with language is once you've used a word, even a few times, um, it begins to cement itself, and then it just comes out more naturally in context. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. About five, ten years ago, you would never hear people using the word narrative. It just wasn't being used. Mm -hmm. If you look today, you know, I remember the movie oh, yeah, Zero cool. Dark Thirty. Remember the movie Zero Dark Thirty when they were hunting for Osama bin Laden and there's a person giving a security briefing and she said, there are two narratives surrounding the whereabouts uh -huh. of bin Laden. And I just took note of that and say, you know, that just would not have been how that line would have been written 10 years ago. The word narrative wasn't being used. But what, once it starts getting used and it finds its way into the lexicon, which is why the dictionary has to be updated the whole time. But what you find is, as you start just using words, then they just flow naturally to you and your, your vocabulary um, naturally expands. 
I think also if you can read intentionally, you know, I know this sounds really geeky, but this is my profession. (laughs) Well, if I hear a particular word or phrase and it just sticks with me, I might write it down. I've got places where I I write these things down. I use an example in the book. I'm a big fan of ESPN's uh, first take. It's a great show on kind of what's going on in sports. And um, I remember a few months ago, I was watching it, and Max Kellerman, one of the presenters, great guy, was talking about something they did to change the rules in college football, but it had this effect they hadn't expected. And he said, um, you know, this is, he said, he was just talking, and he said, you know, this is that classic law of unintended consequences. And that just jumped Uh out at me. I'm like, man, that's a really interesting phrase, the law of unintended consequences, which is you know, we did this, but this thing happened over here that we hadn't expected. And I now find that phrase has found its way into my own, you know, personal idiom now, the language that I use. I was talking recently about PowerPoint. And I said, you know, people use PowerPoint, and they overload their slides in an attempt to be thorough and complete. But they get killed by the law of unintended consequences, which they pack so (laughs) much in people are suicidal by slide eight and they never get their message across. And I just noticed that phrase has worked its way into my long-term memory. And so that's what I would recommend. Now, it's not very helpful advice to tell people to read more, but it's actually the advice I would give most people. So maybe start- It is important. Yeah, maybe start with my book. That's a great place, a great way to read more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the dictionary reading literature, you get uh, excellent uh, yeah. vocabulary there, new stuff, and you have to start practicing, of course. Yeah. By the way, can I can I give your your hearers one piece of advice? There's nothing worse in language than using really tired cliches, and the most common mm. cliche out there right now is taking something to the next level. I literally <laughs> want to kill people who say that. I've heard it said, Eris, just take this to the next level." You know what? I could literally give you a dozen alternatives. Now, let's take our business to a higher elevation, a new altitude, a new dimension, a higher dimension, the next season, a new era of achievement, a new era of accomplishment, a new plateau, a higher plane. I mean, there are hundreds of ways of saying the next level without saying taking it to the next level. I'd love to say, if I'm talking to my colleagues, my team, and say, let's, let's bring our company into a new season of accomplishment, fruitfulness, and abundance. I mean, that's really interesting. And the next level is just criminal. So, by the way, that whole list is in the book, but it's not hard. Just find better ways of saying things. You have no idea how valuable that actually is. (laughs) Yeah, killing glitches. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. One last thing I would like to ask you about your book is the concept of being yourself. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. What's the question? Should you be yourself? <laughs> so what does it mean? Uh, what it's being yourself? Good question. So we're getting into that very final section of the book on, on persona. So this raises two questions. Should you, as a speaker, be yourself? Yes, of course. You can't be someone you're not. You can't fake a persona or a personality Uh, that's not your own. But the more interesting question is, what does it even mean? Is there such a thing as yourself? And I I use an example in the book that I had a, a, my natural presentation style is humorous, a little bit irreverent, and fairly upbeat and fun. I do a lot of keynotes, a lot of presentations. Mm. And naturally, those have that what I would call my natural or default style or persona. But a couple of years ago, I lost a really good friend, contemporary, young, uh, in his very mm-hmm. early 50s to cancer, left a wonderful, beautiful family behind, a wife and three daughters. And I was asked to deliver the eulogy at his funeral. And an entirely different persona was on mm-hmm. play that day. And was I in any way faking that? Was I being disingenuous or false? No, of course not. That persona naturally selected itself based on the occasion. And the point I'm trying to make initially in that section of the book is 
there's this idea of yourself is rather more flexible than you think. There are lots of different possibilities of being yourself. And w- that creates a, a range, in fact, of, of possibilities, a good way of putting it, perhaps. There's a range of possibilities of styles you can choose to adopt or pursue or accentuate. And what that means is if there are certain styles that tend to correlate with effectiveness, you probably have more room to accentuate those styles than you might think. So a lot of people think, I am just who I am. I'm not that funny, blah, blah, blah. And and this is just who I am. But in fact, you have a lot more latitude with your persona than you think you do. And the the final kind of chunk of the book or, or that big chunk of the book on style just explores what are the more effective and and less effective aspects of style? And can you cultivate a style that's more likely to lead to a winning or powerful persona? And so can you be, do you need to be yourself? Yes. But being yourself, there is a lot of possibilities. There are a lot of possibilities even within Mm -hmm. the boundary of being yourself that allow you to stress certain aspects of style that can make you much more effective. Mm Mm-hmm. Correct. So there are a lot of possibilities and you have to be, of course, aware of these personas that you uh, that you have in. Mm-hmm. So you deliver the right one at the right time. Yeah. I don't know if you got this far in the book. I, we What we found, or I found from some research, uh, it, we, we tried to correlate a lot of speakers' styles against their stylistic effectiveness. What I meant by that is whether people really felt drawn to them. And we concluded there are three aspects of style that most tightly correlate with effectiveness and uh, if you want to chat about what they are but there are there are three dimensions of style i believe that if you really cultivate them they will dramatically boost the way your persona is perceived by by people when you present Uh aha i still haven't read that part so i have to (laughs) (laughs) Uh, do you want to chat about what they are do you want to briefly talk about those yes you can please So the first one is authority. And what I mean by authority is um, audiences care a lot that a speaker is kind of in control of what's going on. In other words, they don't like it when speakers are perceived as weak. Now, you don't want to stray over and be too authoritative. You can't be a bully, but they really like it. So, for example, a good authoritative moment would be at the beginning of a presentation. You might say... Okay, guys, can we uh, can we get started, please? Let's start in two minutes. Uh, so just be mm-hmm. wrapping up your calls, and we'll get started. Now, that seems like a very harmless, innocuous phrase, but I, it actually sends an enormous signal to the audience that someone's actually in charge here. And even though they'll never articulate that, this that is incredibly comforting. They want someone to be in charge of the event. If, if you had maybe two people talking, and really distracting the rest of the room. If that speaker ignores it, that's a problem. But if they say, guys, do you mind? I think this is distracting the room a little bit. Perhaps you'd be able to take that conversation offline at the break. That is a really powerful Mm. thing for a speaker to do. So the first real dimension of effectiveness from a style standpoint is is authority. The second one is related but different. It's it's directiveness. What I mean by directiveness is being willing to tell the audience what you think, what you think they should do, what your recommendations are. You're not going to become a dictator. You're not going to tell them what they must do, but they want to know what you think. I I talk sometimes about the weakness of what I call the humble scribe. So the humble scribe presents information, but never really tells Mm -hmm. you what to do with it. What audiences want is for the speaker to take a stand, not in an aggressive way, but I might say this, you know, as I look at this best practice, it is my view that this would be extremely valuable for you guys to adopt. I think it would have these benefits and it would suffer very few disadvantages. That is something audiences desperately want. They want you to draw the conclusions of the material. Now, your job is to understand they have the right to reject your recommendations and to be perfectly fine with that. You're not going to get in some hissy fit if they don't do what you say. But the second thing we found that is very powerful in the persona uh, to make a, a an appealing persona is somebody who takes a stand, who has an opinion. And then the third one is really interesting. It's 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 a degree of self disclosure. And what I what I mean by self disclosure is 
a certain degree of humanity that your audience sees as a real human being there. See, on the extreme end of that, you have a problem at both extremes. If I'm too human, mm. I'm just raw emotion. People find that very disturbing. They find that um, unacceptable, especially in a business sense. But if I'm entirely detached and robotic and you never really know if there was a human being underneath, people find that appealing. <laughs> Now, there's a very interesting example of that from recent U.S. political history. I think it's it's actually, and I'm not the first person to comment on this, a lot of people noted that with Hillary Clinton, there was a certain coldness and detachment from her, that even though her comments were often very intelligent, very well articulated, there was some sense of, do I trust this person? Because I just don't know if I'm seeing the real human being underneath. And what you what you're after is the middle of that spectrum. There's there is a a true level of humanity. People that they can see the real human being underneath. I actually call this objective warmth. It, there's a warmth there to your humanity. It's still objective. You're not all emotion. There's still rationality in your argument, but there's a warmth there. So. I actually talk about this gorgeous point where if you can develop these three attributes, so gracious authority, so be in charge, but do it graciously, humble directiveness, so take a stand, be willing to stand for something, make recommendations, but hold them lightly. If people don't want to go with them, they have that right, and objective warmth, be a real human being. All the research I did and our team did pointed, if you can get those three things right, those are the absolute keys to a, a strong and effective and very appealing persona. So it's, an, it's a fascinating topic. I think arguably that chapter may be the most important um, in the entire book. It's, we call it the three pillars of presence, a winning style. Mm, it is quite, quite fascinating. <laughs> Indeed. Tim, could you tell us what is your favorite quotation? Man, I, I have so many. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll use one I use in the book, and I love this. It's something that Winston Churchill said. He said, there is no more important element in the technique of rhetoric than the continual employment of the best possible word. I, I love that. There is no more important element in the technique of rhetoric than the continual employment of the best possible word. He so perfectly understood this. Churchill was obsessive about language and about using the right word. And I would say, by the way, Churchill was the master of the idea of muscular language. I think that's, mm. what, he's <laughs> that's what he's describing right there. Yeah, I was thinking of that when, when you described this, uh, <laughs> yeah. this he, great quote. He is an example of that. In fact, in the book, I, I, you probably saw this, I actually do a little contrast between Churchill and Hitler in their use of mm -hmm. rhetoric. It's actually astonishing how similar they were in their understanding of the power of rhetoric and the way they used it to mobilize their forces. It's kind of a, a sobering thought that language can uh, arouse people to causes of pure good, but also to causes of pure evil. So it's a, that's kind of the dark side of rhetoric. Yes, Could you now recommend us one book that has been particularly inspiring or influential for you? Yeah, it's so hard, man. Um, I tell you a book I've read recently that just blew my mind, and I would really recommend mm -hmm. it to people. Is read a book called The Brain That Changes Itself. The mm -hmm. Brain That Changes Itself. We tend to have a feeling that the brain is very fixed, that different areas of the brain do different things. If one gets damaged, that's it. It can never happen again. Um, they're learning so much now about what's called neuroplasticity, which is the ability of the brain to modify itself, that if you start doing a task, the, the part of the brain that does that task will grow and expand but uh, and take over more of the brain. But if you stop you uh, doing a particular task, so for example, if you ever had damage and you were paralyzed, say your arm was paralyzed, the part of your brain that controls the arm doesn't go dead. It gets taken over for other things that the brain is doing. And it is mm -hmm. An incredibly interesting book, The Brain That Changes Itself. Well, sounds like a excellent read for any of us. <laughs> Again, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Tim, for this interview. Um, Oscar, thank you very for much. Sharing, for sharing a lot about Mastering the Moment, your newest book. 
Thank you. It's always a pleasure talking with you. It's uh, excellent stories. So many stories. It's it's hard to stop talking with you. <laughs> no, um, Oscar, thank you. I really enjoyed it. It's always fun talking to you. Please tell us how we can find you on the net to find uh, your book, uh, uh, sure. the work you're doing. So the, the company, as was before, is called Aratium, which is from the Latin root of the uh, same word as orator and oratory, but Aratium means an oral argument, so O-R-A-T-I-U-M, uh, aratium.com. And everything that we do is there, books and e-learning and consulting and things like that. So that's probably the easiest way. And we have some social media presence, but I think the website's a great place to start. Okay. Thanks a lot, Tim, and all the best. Yeah, thank you very much, Oscar. Take care. Talk to you again soon. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Did you like it? Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or visit us at timetoshinepodcast.com. Until next time...